The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Why is shame such a powerful emotion? How does it affect us mentally, physically, emotionally? I'm Nadia Davis. I'm a mom, author, attorney, and kundalini yoga teacher who has experienced public shaming that brought me to my knees. On this podcast, I'm going to tell you how I'm living the work taking shame out of the shadows. I'll give you real-life advice and skills to take away with you throughout your day. You'll hear from powerful guests who have overcome trauma and emerged stronger than ever. You too can ban the shame within and around you. Join me. You are not alone. Hi, everyone. I am so excited for today and who I am interviewing, Dr. Dawson Church. Here, we drag shame out of the shadows so that we can better understand it and so we can transform it into power. And today, Dr. Church, I'm hoping, will help us get a better understanding of the science behind shame and the healing of shame. Dr. Dawson Church is a best-selling science writer and the author of three award-winning books, The Genie in Your Genes, which broke new ground by showing that the gene expression is influenced by emotions. I have some interesting questions with that. <laughs> and also Mind to Matter is based on hundreds of studies showing that our brains play a key role in constructing the reality around us. Yes, indeed. And Bliss Brain, he demonstrates that we that as we cultivate peak states, our brains rapidly rewire themselves for happiness, which is absolutely true. He has done a lot of extensive work with veterans um, and offered free PTSD treatment to over 22,000 through Veterans Stress Solution, which he founded. He continues to teach and inspire through his presentations, podcasts, books, and blog posts. So before I ask you all the questions that I selfishly really want you to answer, will you please tell us your story and about the birth of your compassion for helping others with post-traumatic stress disorder? I'd be happy to. And the, the most recent research has shown us that PTSD is easily treatable. And that's a huge breakthrough, Nadia, because when you go back to like 2000, 2005, our track record of good PTSD treatments was very, very poor. And the American Psychiatric Association commissioned a giant study in 2004, and they looked at all of the scientific evidence that had been published over the last century. And they concluded that PTSD was pretty much uh, fixed 
untreatable, it's called a treatment-resistant condition. In other words, um, people did not get better and our available treatments were very, very limited, some drugs, psychotherapy, mm-hmm. but uh, that that poor track record. Like uh, of veterans who get prescribed a treatment plan at a VA hospital, 90% drop out, nine out of 10 drop out because yeah. they're being asked to remember terrible things. And so um, our, our old treatments weren't effective. Our new treatments are fabulously effective. And so I've shifted in the last 20 years from reporting on them in my books, and I become a real advocate of them. I helped start the Veteran Stress Solution that has treated over 20,000 veterans outside of official channels because it took a while to get approved by the, the VA. And initially, mm-hmm. I was working on my own PTSD. I looked through the list of symptoms and realized, check, check, you know, flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance. <laughs> that That's was great. me. And I, 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 after a, a very rocky childhood and growing up with a lot of dislocation in my life, I, I was very disillusioned uh, by like 10, 11, 12. And by 13, I was just suicidal. I didn't want, didn't want to be here. And so as I was, mis- I mean, one day I remember walking past a full length mirror and looking at myself at around 13 or 14 years old. And um, I, this, this thought flashed into my head. I said to myself, those are the saddest eyes I've ever seen. And I realized I was so screwed up. I had to try and fix myself. So I went and uh, joined a spiritual community. I was got deep into the perennial philosophy behind all the religions, did that for a few years, got into psychology, and then got into service and, and helping other people in various there. ways. Yeah. Let me stop you there because thank you for sharing um, that that childhood feeling and and experience. How would you describe your personal, that childhood experience of the emotion we call shame, when you looked in your eyes, how, how, what words would you put on it so that we can help other people put words on, on this feeling that that's so tricky. So, you know, it's so elusive yet. It's so powerful. What was that like for you then? It's physical, emotional, and mental. The mental part is thoughts, and that was a thought. Those are the saddest eyes I've ever seen. It's an emotion, and I could feel it in, in my heart, the sense of just dread about okay. being alive and what the next day might bring, and that just despair of it ever being better. Okay, and fear, then the despair, component, dread. Yes, and the physical component is it's like you've been punched in the gut, you feel as though your body is wrong. You feel even wrong to be in a body at all. A lot of people just feel as though they're so, they're so ashamed. They don't even deserve to live. And you mm-hmm. wonder why you're even here, why you're allowed to live. And okay. I mean, the, the, these sound pretty extreme, but I talk to people sometimes when I'm doing live classes and they're describing these same feelings and their bodies driven by emotion and accompanied by but those For thoughts. you personally, it was dread. And and fear and um, this this like anxiety, that was yeah. how you personally felt it then. Okay, and the sickening we'll- in your body too. It's physical as well. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, one of the earliest studies of um, PTSD after World War One was done by a psychiatrist called Abram Cardiner, and he said that traumatic stress is not mental; it's physical. And so people feel the sense of physical heaviness and dread and a 
the body just doesn't feel right as well. So the physical component is big. So then you were explaining you lived in those beliefs and those thoughts and in that dread then into early adulthood. Yeah. And going and living on a spiritual community didn't help me very much. I, I got, you know, I, I learned about what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy behind all the world's great religions. And um, so I, I picked up a lot of knowledge back along the way doing that. But I didn't feel much, much better. I saw a lot of dysfunctionality in ashrams and spiritual groups and communes and and these these groups of people. They they weren't, you know, personally, they, a lot of them were really struggling. And that's why, why I thought, well, okay, spirituality is pretty flawed. Let's try psychology. <laughs> and you know you get you get to meet a lot of therapists and you realize whoa if i thought the spiritual people were screwed up wait till you see the psychologists <laughs> so what i'm hearing you say is that dread and that fear and that i call it a running to standstill mode that longing it it led you to search and I wanted to, solutions okay so that was your soul calling at the time it you know, the you were drawn, and when that shame is in you, and it's just all encompassing and and darkening of that that longing. That's you know when we enter suicidality, and so. But you followed that that, and you started reading. You said about psychology, and then that's what led you to some of the work. Yes. Okay. okay. And that word you used a moment ago, Nadia, all encompassing. Is, is really key because when you are stuck in what we call a trauma loop, you can't think of anything else. You want to think mm-hmm. positively. You want to act compassionately. You want to find and create love in your life. You want to meditate. You want to do things that are good for yourself and the world, and you just can't. You're stuck there. It's all-encompassing, and your attention keeps on going back there. In psychology, we call this the brain's negativity bias and you tr- you okay. know it's not healthy you know you aren't in a good path you try and extricate yourself and you take online courses and read books and go see spiritual masters and get therapy and it just keeps that that negative feeling keeps sucking you back so it is all encompassing and our best efforts to think ourselves out of it usually fail which leads us to even greater despair so that's where i found myself for for many many years and when I eventually made a commitment, I was 45 years old at the time, to meditate every single day, and I made that commitment, that was the turning point. I was literally, one, one day, I was sitting in a cafe, I was working with a life coach, and she said, are you meditating? And I said, I don't have time to meditate. And I realized when I said those words, Nadia, that's what I needed to do. So mm-hmm. I made the commitment. I had two young kids at the time. I was I was a single dad. And I just wow. had to set my alarm really early, which I didn't like doing, and <laughs> get up and meditate for that first 45 minutes of the day. But I made that decision on a Monday. On Tuesday, I had to meditate. And I literally, it's been, you know, whatever it's been, 25 years or, or whatever it is now, I never stop. I, I, I mean, it, wow. the, it's rare a day goes by. I, I don't meditate and everything began to change. I learned energy therapies. I began to shift. I began to retrain myself as a researcher because I was working in book publishing at the time. And um, 
you make those little choices change. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful. Um, And I very much relate. And when you, I'm putting myself in your shoes of those first days and those first, you know, minutes meditating and, and how you then later as a doctor, I love this, describe um, how the emotions influence our gene expression and pull. And at the time that you were, you know, beginning on your own healing journey and your own awakening, you didn't have those words, right? We didn't, right. And so I wanted to ask, so how then did that personal emotion or does that emotion of shame prior influence our gene expression and and what is a gene expression? And then we'll also use your own journey and awakening for the the rest of the questions. So how was it influencing you? Yeah, so uh, the gene expression part is really well understood by science now. And when you are in a situation that triggers the stress response, then you have a shift in gene expression. And um, expression is just if genes are turned on or turned off. So about 15% of our genes are fixed. Like, you know, your hair is brown, your eyes are brown, uh, your certain height, all of that's fixed gene expression. But about 85% of our gene expression is variable. Like if I go for a walk and I'm in nature, I'm smelling things and I'm really enjoying the scenery, that's going to trigger a certain gene expression. If I'm in a fight, if I'm with somebody who's angry at me or saying nasty things to me, then that's going to trigger gene expression. And it's going to trigger the genes that code, that contain the information our body needs to build, complex molecules like adrenaline and cortisol. And so it's turning those genes on to build those hormones when we're in stressful real-life situations. I see. the crucial thing here is when we're not in those situations, so you have this horrible experience with somebody, you're you're really stressed, they're being miserable to you, and you're making a lot of cortisol. If you go and tell your friend about that a week later, so now you're not in that situation, you are in a safe location and place, and you're just describing something that happened a week before, you're turning on those same stress genes and building those same stress hormones, and you feel terrible as you retell the story. And that's the problem we've had with traumatic stress all along, is that we're driving ourselves into fight or flight when there's actually nothing that is threatening our survival. Or something is said or done around us that that, that reminds us that is that, that triggers yep. that memory. Yeah. And so for you then, uh, personally, you, you see in your meditation, when you started observing those memories or those thoughts or, and, and how did that begin the healing? Was there some, what of a separation like from, okay, this is a thought. So you gain some power over, over the memories and, and was that a way for you to change your gene expression, explain this, you know, ability to experience shame yet not have it influence or gene expression. Yeah, and that's the, I shake my head there because that's the problem. You cannot think yourself out of these situations. And that's because, again, the brain is trained and has been honed by evolution for 4 billion years to focus on the negative. 
And so you say, well, I know I shouldn't be thinking about the negative stuff. I'll think about the positive stuff. It's like saying, don't think about a pink elephant. The only thing you think about <laughs> is a pink elephant when you say I shouldn't think about a pink elephant. And so <laughs> the brain is simply has evolved to focus on the bad stuff. And that's what it does. And that's what kept mm. our ancestors safe. So you can't think yourself out of negative thinking. What you can do is you can use an energy therapy. And that's why all these energy therapies, and there are many of them, they come from you know, millennia ago, like acupuncture and acupressure, and anything that keeps you breathing and in your body, a physical signal of safety like that, that has the ability to interrupt negative thinking. Another thought is very rarely successful. Right. That's that home within. Breathe. Yes. Yeah. And so, so what, what do you mean by our brain's key role in constructing the reality around us? And can, what can we do about it? Like you just said, that's what your comment reminded me of. The, the amazing thing is our brains can create molecules. And so I have a stressful thought that switches on a gene called uh, CYP11B1 that makes cortisol. And so here I made cortisol just for the stressful thought. And if I then de-stress myself, if I meditate, or if I do acupressure or change my energy in a powerful way, then that shuts off CYP11B1, turns on other genes, which make DHEA, which is your main cell repair and euthening hormone. So you are literally making molecules with your mind. In, in one just breakthrough study in 2020, they found that Alzheimer's plaques, Alzheimer's, which is which is triggered in large part by the deposit of these plaques in the brain, which interfere with neural signaling, is correlated more strongly with negative thinking than with anything else. Any oh any lifestyle, goodness. absolutely, you literally are are causing the buildup of beta amyloid plaque in the brain by negative thinking. It's far stronger than genetics, the lifestyle than anything else, uh, it's triggered by negative thinking. So you're making molecules inside your body, but the cool thing is that wow. in the second half- yeah, I need to the, stop you there. Yeah. Be I, wow, that's blowing my mind. And so if, if throughout life we are thinking positive, we are looking at the, at the learning experiences, of, we view pain and suffering in a different way, very much so if oh, that's possible, only if you have a meditation practice to to listen to the intuition. But if one is not doing that in their life and is feeding the, the negativity, it can actually change one's genes to be more prone to get dementia or Alzheimer's versus... Absolutely. It changes wow. your genes. And, and not only that, in that study, they found the effect scales the more negative thinking, the more beta amyloid plaques in the brain. So it's it's dose dependent. It's like the adverse childhood experiences study. The more adverse childhood experiences, and they range from one, one of these to six of these. So that's the scale, zero through six. They find the more adverse childhood experiences, the greater the rates of cancer, heart disease, and other main diseases. So yeah, the effects. But that's the changing point. That's where if you've gone through something as such, and I share so much in, in my book, and thank you for sharing your journey, is when we go through things, it is the impetus to switch it, to dive into and feel it all, experience it all. And 
change change the course that much more intensely and intently and deeply to do the opposite versus we're marked and we can't change and and we're staying stuck in the effects of of trauma um it's i i en- uh, encourage anybody that is you know feeling stuck to see it as okay i'm not i'm never going to get better don't see it that way i'm i'm going to always i'm i'm cursed no it's an opportunity to shift it all and as the doctor is saying construct a different reality around us and so uh, when you started doing your own meditation can you describe that personal experience of when you began reconstructing the reality around you and and how did you do it and then how do you advise people to start i know you mentioned breath but what was yeah. your personal experience well i'm a researcher and so i turn to science and get the answers there and i love science because science gives you empirical data and like for example in my book bliss brain i look at all the meditation studies and i look at the meditation studies that use mris to see how the brain's changing and eegs to determine how information's flowing in the brain and what those studies show is that certain meditation methods are incredibly effective and a whole bunch of them are not effective like whether you wear a saffron robe or blue jeans doesn't make any difference at all uh, <laughs> i have 108 prayer beads hanging around my my uh neck sometimes and i you know i love those prayer beads but i got to tell you that the rosary all that stuff it's window mm-hmm. dressing it doesn't make any difference mm-hmm. three things make a huge difference and so you got to use science to help you hone in on those things so i began to use a science based meditation technique it uses regularizing your breath slow breaths it uses relaxing certain muscles it uses creating certain images that you notice the location of certain um feelings and sensings in your body and when you do this when you add up the science based meditation techniques and use them together it produces radical shift and right. it is one randomized controlled trial of this science based meditation method it's called eco meditation eco meditation we compared people doing it for just one month nadia to a control group and we found that in a single month the part of the brain that processes shame blame guilt anger negative emotion quieted way down and the wow. part of the brain that processes compassion dialed way up and that was when people weren't even meditating just it just produced these changes in the brain in brain anatomy and function and it did it in one month so use a science based meditation method like eco meditation and you can change your brain structure extremely quickly not 10,000 hours not becoming a monastic not having to take any vows just use science based techniques and they'll literally change your brain in a month wow Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. 
Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. That is beautiful. That's what Kundalini Yoga did for me. And I, I explain and, and, you know, the, the great ones, the teachers before, um, the great ones, we describe how it's a full technology, um, because it, it's body, mind, spirit, but it's also, um, the use of sound. So I would love your, your thoughts on the use of mantra as well as, um, sound gong sound. But for me personally, it was the mantras that, that were, and I mean, the breath work was so important to create safety and calm within me, but it was the mantra of replacing the thoughts that was kind of the middle ground, <laughs> right? You've nailed it. The mantra is replacing the thoughts. Something has to occupy that part of the brain and you've got to have something there. If you mm-hmm. sit there and try and empty your, that's what I was taught when I was first learning meditation at 15 years old, they said, empty your mind. And the mind is simply not designed to be empty. It has to have something mm-hmm. in it. And the, that something is thought. And according to one huge Harvard study, most of our thought is repetitive and negative. So mm-hmm. how do you replace it? And so you, if you try to try and empty your mind of all thought, it doesn't work because other things rush in. And the mantra replaces the thought. So you nailed it there. That's yeah. why these ancient techniques are so powerful. They're giving your brain that part of your brain, something to do rather than think negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that right. sound and chanting and uh, even there counting was breaths. One that I remember um, very early on and the Rama Dasa is one I still use and, and uh, several others. Um, and it, you know, Satanama, but one means, it means birth, life, death or transformation and then rebirth and we learned the the pages and pages of learnings that each one of those meant ra ma da sa and having that deeper understanding all that i needed to repeat were those four words to ingest and realize that there was an opportunity for transformation and so it, like we were talking about earlier in that all consuming darkness and, and times when shame is just all encompassing, you know, please know that it's an opportunity for rebirth. It's an opportunity for transformation and we can use breath and mantra slowly to get us there. I wish we could all get an MRI. <laughs> before <laughs> after imagine seriously imagine doctor if people why isn't this out there more why isn't yeah. or is it out there and where why aren't people being scientifically convinced of the wonders of meditation yoga breath work yeah the science is out there and uh most people just are you know there's a wonderful uh image in sufism and they say the gods descend from heaven every morning with their arms full of gifts for the people they love here on earth. And the gods return to heaven every night with their arms still full of gifts because people haven't bothered accepting the gifts they have. Right. And it's a really powerful analogy because all this love, compassion, uh, generosity, goodwill, gratitude, grace is right there. And it takes detaching yourself from what I call in my books 
local mind, local reality, and then focusing on non-local reality, the infinite, that which is always there, consciousness itself. It's right there. It's it's there for us every day. We just don't plug into it because we're so, quote unquote, busy. So you have to make that decision. I'm going to spend this 15 minutes of the day, this half hour, I'm just going to plug in. Now, once you start doing that, we find that people experience all this flood of well-being, and then Mm -hmm. they have a much easier time keeping on with their practice in time. Mm -hmm. But it takes setting aside that time, plugging in, then it starts to permeate down into your local level, your local reality, and your life starts to improve dramatically within, within a few, a month or so of me having a regular practice every day, my money improved, my relationships, my children improved, right. my work improved, my health improved, all kinds of things began to get better. And that's what you'll see when you have a consistent practice. But, and then you're, you nailed it also, there has to be that willingness and that you know, the deep way of saying is like that soul search, that that inventory, a personal. But I don't know why most people don't don't stay stuck. I mean, it's the human condition. We stay stuck in our fears and judgments. I I explain it in a way where like our minds are survivalist in nature, and we never remember that. We never remind ourselves of that that we are not bodies nor our thoughts, and we have a choice every day between thinking that we are and getting lost in fears and judgments or in choosing love and having self-compassion, doing that breathing to then hear all the learnings of our soul and all the answers. You know, there's so many answers. What do you think are the, the, the key tips to cultivate I, what you called peak states. I remember reading the peak yeah. state. So meditation is this fundamental practice. And what it leads to in time is peak states during non-meditation. And so you meditate, you plug into the all it is, you plug into consciousness itself. You're then having that relationship with that universe, that loving benevolent universe that is there for you, all those gifts that the gods are bringing down for you every day. And what starts to happen is that it is then affecting your non-meditative hours of the day. So the hour you're spending in meditation now means you're sleeping better, you're digesting better, you're much less stressed. As a result of being much less stressed, you're more compassionate, you're more capable. We did one study, which is being published in a peer-reviewed journal next year. It showed that people who were doing this for a month improve their productivity at work. They get much more productive, much more creative, much more resilient at work as well as in in their families. So the effects then spread out around you as well. Initially, they're internal effects. They then gradually become external effects as well. And so that's that's the promise of this kind of a a science-based practice. Practice it regularly and the effects start to change not only your body, but the world around you. It doesn't take that long. It takes about a month for that to become obvious. Do it for longer, the effects will intensify past that point too. And the biggest challenges are people think we should be doing it a certain way. Yes, there's pros to doing it in the ways, I mean, with our, we have biases about which ones work the best, but, this, but shame comes up too. If somebody's sitting down saying, okay, I just heard this podcast and I'm going to start 
meditating and breath work. There's really no one way. Yes, there's better ways than others, but it's really about creating your way and listening to just your breath, just starting there. And then you'll be drawn into what practice is, you know, you'll know what's attracting you more. You'll, you'll know which one you get excited about learning more about. Um, I just think that one of the biggest challenges on that journey of healing on that, that, that quest is beating ourselves up thinking we should do it a certain way. What, yeah. what have you found? So early meditation studies were all about just you said meditation, but then a researchers in Germany at the Max Planck Institute said, you know, uh, compassion meditation is very, very different from Vipassana meditation or following a thought meditation or moving meditation. There are different meditation styles. In my book, This Brain, I break them into seven meditation styles. And you're totally right. There's no one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Some people do really well with a sitting meditation. Others do really well with a moving meditation. So there are people who it's, for whom it's painful to sit, but give them yoga, give them qigong, they love it. Mm -hmm. And so they need to move their bodies. Other people are really inspired by reading the works and the words of masters. Go read St. Teresa of Avila. Go read Ram Das. And in Catholicism, that's called Lectio Divina. So you, you, you prime your brain for well-being by reading. So that's, that's not going to work for, the, for the, the mover. That's not going to work for the, the one, person who wants to have a meditative practice of sitting. And so there are seven different styles, and I recommend that you sample those seven styles in Bliss Brain and then pick the one that works for you. If you're what a busy are the mom, other styles? So you, you named um, four or three. Do you remember the other, the, the other four? Yeah. So, so um, silent. Um, reading. Yeah. Uh, one of them is the one you mentioned earlier that involves sound or chanting. Okay. And there, that can be, I mean, as simple as chanting. Om can be, uh, I mean, Gandhi died when he was shot, assassinated. Mohandas Gandhi died with the name of God on his, his last words were Ram, Ram, Ram. He, he died with the name of God on his lips. A lot of these rishis and sadhus do that. And so that's incredibly effective to use chanting or uh, some form of sound. Also, so for some people, visualization is really powerful. They mm -hmm. visualize, for example, the image of a saint. And so by putting that image of Mother Mary or Francis of Assisi or uh, Anandamai Ma or Ramana Maharshi around you, by having those images around you, you are remembering that we are the first people to figure out spirituality, that this path has been trodden by millions of adepts before us, and we can acquire their characteristics by using them as a template for ourselves. So images, visual images like that are yeah, really- Outside in nature, I could see how watching the way the wave is moving in a leaf or the waves- um, the patterns of nature, it, it can be a good source for visualization. Yes. Yeah. And that, that is what, that is another uh, meditation style is to, oh, okay. is to trigger yourself with time and nature. And that can be a Buddhist walking meditation, walking through the forest, one foot 
in front of the other, sitting in a particular place that is really significant to you in nature. But nature alone changes gene expression. And it doesn't take going on a like a four-week wilderness quest. Just walking out into the urban park in Chicago and and standing there in the grass for a few minutes starts to trigger the same kinds of gene expression that in Japan is called forest bathing. People go and immerse themselves in the forest. But go standing on on in that that 20 square inches of grass in the middle of Chicago has the same effects on, on your genes. So all of these are ways of doing it. And you want to pick a, a method that really works for you. So on your personal journey, when the more of these meditations that you did and um, what started happening to your PTSD symptoms? They went away with a speed that amazed me. I was both meditating and I was doing EFT acupressure, emotional freedom techniques, acupressure, tapping on acupuncture points. I found when I get triggered, like the very first time I used EFT, I was really nervous about, uh, I, I had this, this property I wanted to sell and it was falling out of escrow. And I was getting very emotionally triggered about the, the, the deal going away. So I just sat on the steps of my office and I did some tapping. And my anxiety went away. I was like, so that's Whoa. what EFT is, <laughs> is certain tapping on on a different part of your body, your your temples or different yep. parts of your palm, correct? Yeah, okay. there are actually a bunch of points all over your body, and EFT okay. trains you to tap on ones that are particularly effective for stress relief. And so you want to release your stress that way. It's an energy therapy. And like one woman I worked with, have- been- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one woman I worked with um, on stage at Omega Institute a few years back in front of a big audience, she'd been molested as a child between the ages of two and the ages of 17. And that's very, very hard to work on, very, very hard to release. Wow. But she was a therapist. She'd done a lot of inner work. She was ready to do this work. I did a long session with her on that early life molestation. And eventually, she stood up after this session she did with me on stage at Omega, and she said to the audience, she said, you know, I'm a really happy person now. I was a really happy person underneath the abuse. Nothing that man could do to me could take away my joy. Now think about that, Nadia. She's taken this, um, this horrendous abuse that she suffered for 15 years, and now she's standing up, looking at the audience, She's turned it into a narrative of her power to be joyful. That's what we call in psychology a cognitive shift. And you take the very things that most injured you and wounded you and disabled you. And now you look back and say, that sucked. That should never have happened. It was unfair. It was grotesque. It was awful. And I'm now turning that into a narrative of thriving, surviving, getting through it. I'm stronger as a result. That's the kind of power that energy therapies have to produce changes in our psyche. Beautiful. And nothing anyone has said or done to us, including ourselves, changes <laughs> our true infinite self and that love and light we are. So what a beautiful story. I'd love please give me her name and everything after. I would what a beautiful story. Um okay. Let's put some words as as a last point. Let's put some words on 
your experience of what happens, it's hard to describe because we could you we could say, okay, you know, life gets easier and things bother you less, but we're dragging this out of the shadows. So if you can describe the experience of how it felt to get some freedom from the shame, like you would sit down and you weren't afraid of listening to your thoughts or, or when they would come up and you knew how to handle it. Like let's get into a little bit of nitty gritty of what the first steps of the benefits are. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you have to do two things. And the first thing you have to do is you have to solve the puzzle of trauma. And there are people, and again, I, that spiritual community I was part of, they didn't have any trauma clearing uh, methods. In fact, they pretty much were in denial and did spiritual bypassing around trauma. And they taught that you didn't need to go deal with all that yucky stuff in your subconscious mind. All you did was meditate, hit these peak states, and then the old personality just dissolved. Mm-hmm. And research shows that that is not the way it works. Research shows you absolutely have to go into your body. You have to remember. You have to process all of that old stuff through. If you do not do that, it festers and becomes the dark side of the personality and the shadow. And from the shadow, it rises up and grabs you and and gets your attention. That's why all these spiritual communities where there are these glowing leaders, there are these sex scandals and money scandals and land scandals and abuse scandals because these people haven't healed that trauma side. So you have to go in there and you have to heal a way of healing trauma. And it's EFT that I teach to do that. All these physical methods are are effective for that. EMDR is effective. Yoga therapy is effective. EFT is incredibly effective because it's it's self-help. You don't need a therapist to do most of it. So that's why I emphasize EFT tapping. And there are other methods as well. So that's what you do have to do as 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 a way of getting yourself out of trauma. Then you walk up the mountain. That's when you go for the peak states. And that's when you start to meditate and hit these extraordinary states of, of, of joy. And so I found that happening for me, Nadia. I began to have absolutely ecstatic experiences. And they weren't just happy. They were at a level of happiness that the average person has no idea even exists. And we find in neuroscience research now that when people are hitting these peak states, they're experiencing joy. In Sanskrit, they use the word vishoka sometimes, sorrowless joy, joy without any trace of sorrow. Um, Another word used in Sanskrit is ananda, A-N-A-N-D-A, ananda. And there's a molecule called anandamide that we find is explodes in in the amount of it in the brains of meditators and and people hitting these states. They're literally in incredible ecstasy. And so Mm -hmm. that's what you start to experience. Ecstasy is so great that there's just no way you can even explain it to other people. That's why doing things like, you know, microdosing and drugs can be helpful sometimes because people at least experience the ecstasy for a while. But I remember microdosing myself a few years back and thinking, cool, that got me about 75% of the the way to where I am in meditation every morning. So if I didn't know that place existed, it would be great to have the microdose to, to let me know it exists. But now that I know it exists, I don't need the drugs, you know. They're just a temporary way of, of letting you know there's a there there. So that's the next thing you move to. Trauma clearing, 
must come first. Like we have one developmental program called the Short Path to Oneness, teaching about non-dualism and these direct paths to oneness. We have people do a trauma clearing program first before they set the first foot on the short path to oneness Mm -hmm. so that when they move up to these mountaintop experiences, they aren't hobbled by Mm -hmm. the dark side or the shadow, which can produce a dark night of the soul experience if you don't clear the trauma first. Those are the two essential things, clearing trauma and then moving these elevated peak states that our brains, every human being's brain is wired for that ecstasy. Mm -hmm. You just have to turn that wiring on. And once once you begin, I just know personally that there's less there's less fear and less anxiety about the memories, about thoughts in general, and they start to kind of pass by, and there's some detachment from them, and and this this general kind of neutral space starts to develop. And that, that is where my home within started developing. It, it was a level of separation from my thoughts. You, I can't completely separate from, from them, but I knew that my brain was making them. My, I knew that, it, that there was another part of me, in fact, all of me, in an infinite soul, true self that was untouched. And okay, I'm thinking about this today and it's all literal, all this stuff, or I'm in pain somewhere in my body. And that home within became this place where the the junk in the head wasn't (laughs) preventing the bliss brain, wasn't preventing it. You know what I mean? And so I love the title of your book. Um, And there's so much we could talk about. but literally, once you started meditating, you never stopped. And then everything, then you got to these peak states, and then your books evolved, and you wrote them. Really? Yeah, I first became aware, the first best-selling book I wrote was called The Genie in Your Genes. Okay. And I began to realize that these um, elevated states were triggering gene expression. And that was a really big idea in 2004, 2005, when I was first writing about this, we knew that nutrition and diet could trigger gene expression. We knew that certain other factors could trigger gene expression. We did not know at that point that elevated experiences would trigger gene expression. And that's what that book traces. And then I wrote the book Mind to Matter, showing how our brains literally are tuning into certain information fields and then translating those into the reality around us. And then finally, when I, I had several personal tragedies in my life after I wrote Mind to Matter, I then, um, my house burned down. I went, went under financially. I'd all kind of, I was involved in one of the California wildfires. And just we, my wife and I woke up in the middle of the night. There was a wildfire roaring down toward our home. We literally grabbed our car keys, sprinted to the car and drove out as the whole area, I mean, 5,000 homes in a few wow. hours went up in flames that night. And we were very lucky to escape with our lives devastating experience. And then we went under financially because our, our our office burned, all our possessions burned, we lost everything. And wow. in the middle of all of that, I wrote Bliss Brain because I was meditating in the midst of Incredible. all this destruction and devastation in our lives over the course of several years. And I was in ecstasy. <laughs> My friend said, you got to tell us how you do that. And uh, I did. I, I wrote the book Bliss Brain to explain how mystics can get into these states and how they then propagate into our into flow states in everyday life. 
That is incredible. That is incredible. Okay, folks, it's Genie in Your Dreams, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter, and Bliss Brain. All incredible books that I get to look forward to reading the entirety of. I've, I have looked at Bliss Brain, and it's incredible. It's incredible. Thank you so much. There's so much more I would talk to you about. So I hope that this is uh, the first of several interviews. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to offer or say? The big message is where I began that traumatic stress, whatever has hurt you, I'm sorry it happened. And the effects are are curable. We can change. We can shift. That's the big message of the scientific research of the last 20 years, is that we do not have to live with the after effects of adverse childhood experiences, of adult experiences of traumatic stress, that the, the tools are now here in psychology and spirituality to release that burden and help us have these blissful lives. So I just, my, my big message and idea is go for it. It's right there. Science shows you can have that blissful life. It's yours. All you have to do is choose it and then implement these practices in a practical way in your life every day. Awesome. Woohoo. Yes. Yes. And yes. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Hart. You are not alone. If you are dealing with shame and trauma, please reach out to me through my website, nadia-davis.com. You can get a free band shame tip sheet and find out about upcoming events. I'd love it if you picked up my book, Home is Within You, wherever books are sold. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and make sure to follow me on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sending warm hugs. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.